This week is Parshas Vaera. We're in the thick of the Exodus story. The Jewish people have been enslaved by Pharaoh for many, many years. Moshe is born, and Moshe is uh, Moshe is recruited to go save the Jewish people. He goes to Pharaoh. Initially, Pharaoh rebuffs it very strongly. He makes the work even worse. And finally, God says, okay, we're going to start unleashing the plagues against Egypt. And in this week's Parsha, we have the first seven of ten plagues. And again, if we look at it holistically, we see a, a systematic humbling of Pharaoh and the Egyptians with all these plagues. The final pa- plague in the Parsha is a plague of hail. You have these miraculous balls of ice and fire that are crashing down and destroying all uh, everything that's left outdoors. There's an interesting aspect in this story where Moshe, like he does by most of the plagues, he warns everyone and he warns the Egyptians, this is what's going to happen, which of course augments the miracle. When there's a miracle that happens, but is foretold by the prophet earlier, it makes it clear that the prophet is in communication with God. So Moshe tells them that there is going to be a plague of hail descending, raining down from heaven. And the Torah then describes, well, what happens? Moshe has been six for six. The first six of the plagues have happened exactly like he told. And therefore, and, and, and there's, there's restlessness amongst the Egyptians because their whole society is in upheaval because of these plagues. And even the Egyptians themselves go to Pharaoh and say, just let these people go. My, my goodness, how much could we suffer? But the verse tells us in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, is that they were, the Egyptians were split. Yet some Egyptians that decided to heed Moshe's warning and to bring all their valuables and all their livestock, everything indoors to safety and to shelter, and others left them outside and they ignored Moshe's warning. But the way the Torah describes it is very informative, very illustrative. So the way the Torah describes it is that those who feared the word of God of the servants of Pharaoh, they brought all their slaves and all their cattle and all their livestock to their houses. So you had some of Pharaoh's servants that feared God, and therefore they listened to Moshe. And those who didn't pay attention to the word of God, they left all their stuff outside, and that was destroyed. And it's interesting, like it's it presents a contrast. On one hand, you have those who fear God. The word of God really impacts them. And you have those that don't pay attention to the word of God. And all the commentators point out, like, we're getting here a definition of what it means to fear God. What it should have said, perhaps, is that those who fear God listened to Moshe, brought their stuff inside. Those who didn't fear God didn't listen to Moshe, didn't bring their stuff inside, and that was destroyed. That that would seem like a, like a uh, balanced contrast. Some feared God, some didn't fear God. Here it says, those who feared God brought their stuff inside, and those who didn't pay attention to the word of God left it outside. What this is telling us is that everyone had access to the same information. There was no knowledge gap between these two groups. Everyone knew that Moshe's words have been perfect until now, and the predictions of these terrible events happened exactly like he told, and that there was, there was no discrepancy between what they knew. The only difference is how it impacted them. And fear of God That means taking what you know and bringing it home and 
allowing it to penetrate your heart. Paying attention. Sam libo means, they p- literally means place your heart on the matter. L- allow the matter to dwell within you. And those are the ones who fear God. Fear God just in this context means to allow what you know intellectually to impact your heart and how you behave and how you feel. And the other ones, they knew the same information. And if you were to ask them intellectually, is Moshe, has, has he been accurate? Has, been a, has he been a good forecaster of future plagues on the, on the Egyptian people? You would say, they would say yes. But to them, they didn't fear God. They didn't allow that to penetrate themselves. It didn't, it didn't change who they were. They, it was only external. So I think this is a good, a, a, a good juncture to, to talk about the idea of fear of God. Uh, the verse tells us in Deuteronomy that what does God want from us? What's the bottom line? There's so many details about Torah and mitzvos and Jewish living and tikkunol. There's so much detail. But what's the bottom line? It says, what does God want from you? It gives a list. But the first thing in the list, to fear God. Well, God wants you to fear God and to love God and to do the mitzvos. And it's ironic because it seems like it's distilling it down to the basic fundamental ideas, but it gives us a very long list, which is a separate question. The first thing that it mentions of the objective of Torah, the end game, what, what, what is the actual goal? The first thing it mentions is fear of God. And here we see is that the knowledge, by, uh, that's ubiquitous amongst the Egyptian. Everyone knows the information. What distinguishes the person who fears God and the person who doesn't fear God is whether or not they allow that information, they pay attention to it. You know, I had this past Friday, I had a, a court appointment. And I have, I have some thoughts about what, what, what I experienced there. A few months ago, I got a ticket uh, driving to class to teach Torah. And uh, the ticket that was going allegedly 77, but the officer was nice enough to write only 70 on the, on the citation. 70 to 60 mile in Arizona. So I'm not paying it. I'm going to go fight it in court. And uh, I've never been to court. I don't know what it's like. But anyhow, uh, so we made an appointment. It was in September or something like that. And then there was the flood. So that they pushed it off to December. And then in December, I had another conflict. So we pushed it off to January. So January 5th is my appointment. So I get this really long email from my lawyer that I hired. I have some quotations about this uh, from this email. Please dress appropriately. Persons wearing shorts, halters, I don't even know what halters are, tank tops. <laughs> I don't, anyone knows what halters are? Tank tops or swimmer will not be permitted to proceed with her case. Please do not wear clothing with slogans, statements, icons, logos, etc. While jeans are acceptable, they should be properly tailored and without holes tears, rips, etc. This is a very long email. I'm putting out some nice select quotes. Parking and traffic have recently become more problematic around the courthouse. We have found that if you're not in the parking lot by 7.30 a.m., it is unlikely that you'll be able to find a parking space, pay the meter, put the receipt back in the car, get through the building security, and into the court- courtroom before the doctor call begins. Please plan accordingly. So there's the, the appointment's at 7.45. You I get there really early. And, and the, the email ends with this terrifying... Uh, statement, if you need any different additional information, please contact us by email or phone. And remember, in all caps, don't be late! Exclamation point. 
So I'm all terrified. I haven't been to court. If you miss the court appointment, the judge isn't issue a warrant for your arrest. It's really terrifying. So what I do on Thursday night, I set up two alarm clocks <laughs> in case one of them malfunctions. You never know. Like, what if the internet goes down? That's really terrifying. And I have to get up early because I have to dive in beforehand. And on the email, it says, oh, gosh, you could be there till 2 a.m., 2 p.m. Or even till 4 p.m. Bring a lot of stuff to read. So I was so, I was so nervous the whole night. I'm like, I wake up on time. What if I missed the appointment? I, I was so nervous. I even woke up before the alarm clock. And and I'm driving there. And, I, and I'm like, what happens if there's traffic? I see traffic the other way. It's morning. It could be traffic. What do I tell the judge if I'm late? Fine, I get there. And I pay the parking and I go inside. And I've never been to a courthouse. It's kind of, you know, it's like, I guess, the way you would imagine it. And there's this bailiff. And he's barking all these instructions. Can't chew gum. And you have to sit in this right place. Oh, don't sit there unless you've been subpoenaed as an... And he's telling him to trophy yourself. Not onto airplane mode. Not onto vibration mode. Turn them off. And there's cameras here. And if the cameras see you on your phone... You're going to be forced to go back to your car and put your, put, and put your phone in your car. And, I, and there's a whole room full of people, and they're all fidgeting nervously, and there's a bunch of lawyers milling about. And um, finally, the judge shows up, and the judge doesn't show up until 8 o'clock. <laughs> Turns out that the actual appointment was at 8, but the lawyer is so fearful that everyone's going to be late that he writes it in the email at 7.45, just to cover your bases. I could have gotten there at 8.30 and been on time. But the judge finally shows up, and everyone stands up reverently, and everyone's all nervous. Hopefully, the judge is favorable to them. Now, the bottom line is, uh, the officer, in my case, didn't show up. So the case was dismissed, and I, was, I left the building by 9 o'clock. But I had this, I had this feeling, you know, we, we have every morning, we have an appointment with God. And do we put an alarm clock to make sure we're there on time? Do we wake up and say, oh, gosh, I made two alarm clocks. What if we're late? And the, the attitude that we have is like, you know, this is – we got this. We got this covered, you know. There's no, there's no need for alarm clock. You wake up a little late. No big deal. God understands. And we have this discrepancy between the human judge. This is not a murder case. This is a traffic <laughs> citation. It's very, very minor. But in our view and the way we live, like, we, we don't fear God. We don't – of course, if you were to ask anyone, who's you, are you, who are you more scared of? Are you scared of the human judge who is dealing with traffic cases and whatever? And all these little minor nothing really doesn't – my goodness, like a, in life, like wh- how big are these cases that were – it's not exactly – that's Supreme Court, right? Does that person have more power or God, creator of heaven and earth, king of all kings, who has no term limits and has no oversight? Of course, we're all, we would all say that God has more power. What determines if we have fear of God is whether or not we take that what we know and actually allow it to, to impact us. And to me, this was like a big, I was there and I was, I was upset at myself. I'm sitting there and I'm all nervous, but somehow when it comes to God, we don't have that same fear of God. We don't take that lesson to heart. There's a, a teaching in the, uh, in the Talmud on page uh, 28b of the book of Brachos, about Rabbi Yochanan Medzakai. Rabbi Yochanan Medzakai, one of the great personalities of the Talmudic era, he, a very famous, very famous story with him in Vespasian. He was the leader of the Jews in Jerusalem during the time of the Second Temple being destroyed. 
And he actually snuck out and negotiated with the Roman general who eventually would become the Roman emperor, Vespasian. And he negotiated to allow that the rabbis wouldn't be killed. And the city of Yavne, where all the great rabbis went to, or the Sanhedrin moved to, that would that city would be spared. And he he died very old. He was 120 years old. And the Talmud tells us a, uh, a story about what happened to him on his deathbed. And when he was ill, the students came to visit the great Rabbi Yochum Mazakrai. And when he saw them, he started crying. And the students said to him, The candle of Israel, the right pillar, the strong hammer, why are you crying? And he says to them, Well, if I was going before a human king, a king of flesh and blood, and the king, today's here, tomorrow he's in the grave. And if he gets angry at me, his anger is not eternal. And if he punishes me, his punishment is not forever. And if he kills me, that death is also not eternal. And I could still cajole him with words and bribe him with money. But if I was going before a human king, I would still be crying. I'd be so nervous. And now that they're bringing me before the king of all kings, the Holy One, blessed is he who lives forever. And for he's, he's eternal. And his anger, could, if he gets angry at me, to be eternal. And if he punishes me, to be eternal. And if he kills me, to be eternal. And I cannot cajole him with words or bribe him with money. And not only that, who knows where I'm going? What's going to be with me? And I would, I'm not going to cry. And what he's exactly saying is, is the same thing that we, we would all feel. Everyone, you know, in our minds, the, the human judge or the human team, that's something to be scared of. Well, Rabbi Yochum is actually showing us how someone who has real fear of heaven, where what they know is true actually penetrates their heart. They pay attention to it, how they behave. To them, that's real as well. And trying to bridge that gap to take what we know and pay and pay attention to and allow it to impact our hearts, that's really the objective. That's what separates us from people like Rabbi Yochum and Zakai. You know, he took the lessons to heart. He he feared God because that knowledge penetrated within him. I have one more story. I may have, maybe I've, I've said it before that I've personally witnessed. Pardon me if you're hearing it again. When my uh, venerated grandfather of blessed memory, when he was ill, the final few months of his life, he had a very hard time sleeping at night. And he, would, he was in a lot of pain, and he, he, would, he would, wasn't, wasn't getting comfortable, and he wouldn't be able to go through the night without waking up and needing attending. So what they, what they settled on was that all the grandchildren would do a rotation, and every night there'd be some other grandchild who would be there staying with him. That way my grandmother should sleep, and there'd be someone there taking care of him. So I was there one, I was there a few nights, but one night I was there, and it was uh, three in the morning, and my grandfather wakes up. So I quickly uh, hurry over to him, and what's the, what's the matter, what's going on? Is it time to dive in chakras? Is it time to pray, the morning prayers? I hit them, Saba, it's three in the morning, you have four and a half hours left, go back to sleep. Half hour later, he wakes up again, is it time for chakras? I say, Saba, it's, it's only 3.30. Four o'clock, he wakes up and says, I'm getting up. He gets up, he washes his hands, he gets dressed, and he's there sitting in the vestibule of a small, tiny apartment. He's sitting with his hands clenched and all dressed. It's 4.15 in the morning. He's ready to go. He's going to wait it out. I remember thinking, like, it was such a, it was such an eye-opening experience for me. To, to me, 
if you wait up for Shachris on time, great. If, if you're a, little bit, a few minutes late, well, fine, whatever. It's not the end of the world. To him, like you're actually talking to God every morning. If you had an appointment with the president, how would you be able to sleep the night before? Politics aside, president, if it's not, you don't like this president, the previous one, whatever. Would you be able to sleep? Of course you wouldn't. You'd be all nervous. You'd put up the two alarm clocks. Someone throughout a lifetime, a lifetime of deepening this fear of heaven, this taking the lessons to heart, that's the result. The result is that it's real. And we, we, we wonder, like, how is it possible for those Egyptians, they didn't take their, don't they learn the lesson? They don't take their stuff inside? The answer is, is who knows what we would be in the same position? Yeah, Moshe was right, but maybe that was a fluke. So what? Okay, yes, it's true. So what? I'm not going to change. I'm not going to bring my stuff inside because of Moshe. Moshe saying that. This, I think, is is a little bit of a of a model of what our objective in life is. It's it's to unlock our heart and to allow the knowledge of God to penetrate. The Egyptians, some of them did, some of them didn't. The ones that did, they're Egyptians. Maybe they're idolaters. But what does the Torah say about them? That they feared God, and that is. Something that we hope that we could strive to achieve, to allow the spiritual realm, the spiritual world, to allow the existence of our soul, that whole aspect of who we are and how we live our life, allow that to become part of part of us. And if that becomes part of us, if that becomes tangible, if that becomes real, then we know that uh, part of our spiritual mission in life uh, has been, we have accomplished that.